This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Over time, King starts to delve deeper into black history as well and racial slavery as well uh, and comes to a deeper conclusion like he does in this sermon that it's not enough to just help the wounded human being on the side of the road. You have to change the, the systemic structural conditions that allowed the violence against that person to happen in the first place. This is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, a podcast where we're learning how to do good better. I'm Kent Annan, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, and I'm joined by my colleagues Jamie Ayton and Laura Finch to explore how we can more effectively love our neighbors from everyday acts of kindness to the most complex humanitarian challenges facing the church and society today. The name of the Better Samaritan was inspired by a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said, quote, It is not enough to aid the wounded man on the Jericho Road. It is also necessary to work to change the conditions of the road that made robbery possible, end quote. And you can find a link to that sermon in the show notes. Peniel Joseph is an American scholar, teacher, and leading public voice on race issues who holds a joint professorship appointment at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and the History Department in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Joseph joined the University of Texas Austin in 2015 from Tufts University, where he had founded the school's Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. He founded a second Center for the Study of Race and Democracy on the University of Texas campus in 2016. He is director of the center. He's written a number of books, the latest being The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., which is a dual biography. Uh, Peniel, we're so grateful that you're with us here. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a, it's our honor. And part of, uh, you know, I think just in and of itself, we wanted to talk with you. We're so grateful for the work you're doing. And uh, a sort of secondary reason that led us to find you is our podcast here, which we've just launched in the past month, is um, in part inspired by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermon on being a good neighbor. Um, we're wondering if you, you know, that sermon was, I think, outlined first in 1960, uh, eventually delivered a few years later. And what inspired us about that sermon is the way it talks about not just helping the Good Samaritan, uh, but helping to ensure that the Jericho Road is made safe for those who come after. We'll start here. Do you have any insights? Have you done any research reading of that particular sermon? You know, I have read that sermon, and I think um, certainly Dr. King uh amplifies the point of that sermon um, in deeper ways through the latter half of his career, because I think um, that sermon is an extraordinary sermon about empathy, about what he later, um, or he, he calls the revolution of values, building the beloved community. But even um, when he writes that sermon and delivers that sermon, he's not quite ready to fulfill every single aspect of that sermon because he he talks about the dangerous uh road 
the Jericho Road is also a dangerous road. So there were there were aspects. There were times King left people lying on the road too, um, and and there were people like Malcolm X and and black radicals and revolutionaries who were actually uh, critiquing that aspect of King. I think by 1965, King refuses to let let leave anybody on that road, and the country and his relationship with President Johnson his relationship with the New York Times, his relationship with people who had feted him and given him the Nobel Peace Prize changes accordingly once he um, once he really starts to embody the capaciousness of that of that sermon. And, and so as you reflect on that sermon, curious what what really speaks to you as you maybe the thinking back to even the first time you heard it? Well, I think what speaks to me, um, especially for our own times, this idea of uh, seeing a fellow human being in need. Um, he talks about the ugly practices of our nation. Uh, King is always trying to push us towards a, a human rights agenda through the particular lens of Black people uh, and that struggle for Black citizenship and Black dignity. And so much of what he says um, in that speech uh, almost 60 years ago uh, really encapsulates our own time uh, where we see really the ugliness of the racism that King tried to combat, the pervasiveness of the white supremacy of his own time has really exploded and amplified in our own time. So uh, even as we sort of laud King and we want to use him as this heroic signifier of the value of American exceptionalism, his, his, his life actually proves the opposite, you know, because you know this idea of American exceptionalism, America, as as this special nation where where uh, God has looked down <laughs> in 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 God's glory and sort of provided America with all these gifts, um, is is built on these these lies. And I think King really um, he articulates aspects of that this in in this speech. He hints at it. Um, he talks about a single garment of, 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 of destiny, which is one of his famous lines in this speech. Um, he talks about an alternative world of, of brotherhood. Um, so in a lot of ways, King is calling us towards that beloved community in this speech, uh, but he's also suggesting that it's going to really take a greater political maturity from everyone. And really by, in a lot of ways, I think you can almost look at this as a prequel to uh, the Riverside Church sermon on April 4th, 1967, where where he's saying America is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. And in, in a way, he's going away from this approach. I think the early king, when we think about a carrot and a stick approach, he adopts for the carrot, this idea of inspiring people. Uh, and the latter king is really a pillar of fire and an <laughs> Old Testament prophet who's... Um, who's calling out uh, the, the, not just the inequities, but the iniquity uh, within the society. Mm. Could you say things that like this context is really helpful as we think about this, like what you just said and kind of this shift in, uh, in Dr. King, could you say how that relates to his trying to both take care of the, wounded man on the side of the road to quote the sermon, but also to change the conditions of the Jericho road that made robbery possible. Why did he have that shift then from uh, that? You just uh, talked about of the inspiration to more of the old Testament prophet. Is it, is it, um, 
you know, just frustration with the slowness of change? Or how else would you understand that shift that we see in those two parts that you just articulated? You know, I understand it as something that's both deeply religious and personal and spiritual, but also um, Dr. King relating to the existential crisis of race and democracy. Also, the influence of Malcolm X and Black radicals and revolutionaries on King. I think King starts to listen to them. He never gives up or abandons his belief that nonviolence, personally, philosophically, spiritually, is what's going to lead to change. But he starts to absolutely think about systems and structures uh, much more in his politics. I think intellectually, King always knew that the United States was an imperialist society. He always knew, he talks about monopoly capitalism in this sermon, but he was he was unwilling to say that and to say that this is going to be part of my political practice. This is how I'm going to mobilize. I'm going to tell Lyndon Johnson that capitalism is a bad thing and that the war in Vietnam is a bad thing. I'm going to say that at the Oval Office. He was unwilling to do that. Now, people, again, I think it's important to understand the influence of King's contemporaries. King's biggest contemporary who disagreed with aspects of his philosophy, even though they both had a joint interest in Black liberation is Malcolm X. And Malcolm X and his his philosophy of Black political radicalism, radical Black political self-determination is very key here because Malcolm calls for the civil rights movement to be a human rights movement. Malcolm is uh, Black America's prosecuting attorney turned statesman who's prosecuting white America for a series of crimes against Black people that go back to racial slavery. Malcolm's talking about House Negroes versus Field Negroes. Over time, King starts to delve deeper into Black history as well and racial slavery as well uh, and comes to a deeper conclusion, like he does in this sermon, that it's not enough to just help uh, the, the the wounded um, um, human being on the side of the road. You have to change the, the systemic structural conditions that allowed the violence against that person to happen in the first place. And that's where King truly becomes... Um, not just a radical, but a revolutionary figure, always nonviolent, but he 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 becomes a figure who's who's much closer to the principles, not just even Old Testament prophets, but also also Jesus Christ a, as a revolutionary figure. Jesus Christ is somebody who is battling poverty, um, somebody who uh, uh, you know criticizes those in the temple, uh, the money changers, and and is is overturning temples and is a figure who's nonviolent, but at times shows passion and, and rage against inequity uh, in his own life. So it's, it's, it's very extraordinary what happens to the latter, the latter king. Hmm. In a recent interview, you said the mythology around both men frames them as opposites, frames Malcolm as king's evil twin and king as the saint who would just give everybody a hug if he was alive right now. Uh, I love how you're helping us to see that that's not the case. Can you talk a little bit more about what's the process? Is, uh, um, you know, is it to avoid facing difficult truth? Is that why these kind of edges get kind of, um, what's the right words? Edges get taken off King so that we have this image where, you know, everybody anywhere on the political spectrum can quote King and he feels like he's safe when, as you're saying, he's not safe, uh, you know, for white Americans to reflect on, for example. Well, yeah, and this this is left, right, and center. So somebody like Barack Obama had a bust of King in the Oval Office at the White House. Uh, many people who are progressives love Barack Obama, African-Americans, the whole deal, first black president. Barack Obama, 
uh, oversaw drone strikes and oversaw war uh, and violence in 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 the defense of American democracy from his point of view. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. wouldn't have agreed with any of that. And we know this. He wouldn't have agreed with any of that. So Dr. King is a tough critic of whether you're Obama, Lyndon Johnson, Trump, Nixon, Carter, all of it, right? So what 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 the reason why we shave off those 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 harder edges of truth is that in our own time, we've lost the moral purpose uh, for American democracy. And that's obvious. So our democratic institutions are failing. Our structures of American democracy are failing. Um, the stranglehold of white supremacy uh, is choking off the potential of America to even survive as a democratic republic and a nation state. Uh, King saw all of this, and King told us this. That's the and again, before King said this, Malcolm did. Malcolm's assassinated February twenty first, nineteen sixty five. King, not until April 4th, 1968, Thursday, uh, Memphis time, the Lorraine Motel, 6 p.m. Memphis time. But what King said before he was assassinated all throughout 1966 and 67, 68, he's saying that militarism, uh, militarism, materialism, racism, this triple evils facing humanity are going to destroy the United States. And that is very, very uh, hard for people to hear. King very famously said that vanity asks what is popular and conscience asks what is right. And so King is telling the country what it needs to hear, not what it wants to hear. And it's remember, it's important for us to know that white public opinion of King is tumbling at the end. Uh, there are going to be white Americans who are dancing in the streets when King is assassinated. King is the person who tells us that America is a, a nation that is sick with the cancer of racism, and he pushes back against critics. He says, I'm just the doctor diagnosing the disease. I didn't cause the illness. And, and Peniel, one of the things that really struck me as you were sharing there that seemed to be kind of a theme, uh, you, you described it as uh, we shave off those harder edges and talked about how we've seen that in broader society with our leaders, our presidents and institutions. Curious, how have you seen maybe the church shave off some of those harder edges? Well, the church is very interesting because in a way, King innovates utilizing the church as, and obviously the black church historically, even before the end of racial slavery, has been this institution for education, for um, politics, for social justice. But when we think about the corollary white churches of the 19, of the post-war period, um, King tried to push people, whether it was Billy Graham and evangelical Christians, whether it was the Catholic church, whether it was uh, rabbinical leaders and Jewish synagogues, whether it was Protestants or Baptists, he tried to push them to understand that this idea of black citizenship and black dignity um, was connected to uh, the, the the teachings of Christ and and their own faith. Um, obviously, King is a practitioner of the Black social gospel, and and that is an interpretation of Christianity that really looks at at the Bible as something that is very relevant to our actual lives. And Jesus is this radical political figure. The, the, the prophets is these radical figures who are trying to eliminate poverty, eliminate racism, eliminate inequality and violence. 
And so in a lot of ways, what we've seen since Dr. King's assassination is the rise of a kind of evangelical Christianity um, that that really uh, really reimagines the teachings of Christ in a way that allows for people to say, be both um, against abortion, but pro-death penalty, uh, to be against um, uh, you know, welfare rights and social justice, uh, but before um, you know, unfettered capitalism and as many uh, sort of stock options as you can get. And you, this is all in the name of of Christ. This is all in the name of Christ. So, if anything, what we've what the church has turned into not just evangelical Christians, but but just different um, uh, church leaders and different church sects have turned into the exact opposite of what Dr. King was, because Dr. King utilized the church to try to produce a platform of more moral and political clarity in its larger sense, not the cheap morality of, 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 of gossip about people's personal lives, but a deeper morality of, you know, does everyone in the United States, uh, are they food secure? You know, there's 30 million people a day who don't have enough food in this country, the richest country on the face of the earth. And now I wanted to transition with you, Peniel, into what we call the big five better Samaritan questions. And often we're asking these of uh, practitioners, people who are working with refugees, people who are working on human trafficking issues. Well, we, we thought it'd be great to ask you the same questions as a scholar and and uh, look forward to your thoughts. And so they're big questions with not quite enough time on purpose to answer them fully, uh, but, um, but we'd love to hear your thoughts. So starting with the first question is, what's something that has surprised you recently in your work? I think um, what's been surprising was uh, when I was doing the research on Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., um, finding out that Malcolm had come to Harlem in December of 1964 to listen to Dr. King's speech there after winning the Nobel Peace Prize, that he found the speech favorable. He was sitting next to um, Andrew Young, uh, who's one of King's lieutenants. Um, and I thought that was really remarkable and that he spoke about that speech in a positive way a few days later uh, so that they were um, in the same arena after the March 26th meeting at the U.S. Senate. Um, there was one other time they were in the same arena. And certainly the final time is in the, in the same city when they're both in Selma shortly before Malcolm's um, assassination. And how have you been learning to do good better in this work? Well, I think that part of this, and I think the, the great part of the Good Samaritan speech is when he's talking about, um, he, he says sympathy and compassionate, but he's really talking about empathy. And I think the deeper you do this work, um, ideally, uh, the more empathy um, you have for, for other people and people who are trying to do the same work and how difficult um, it is, especially in the context of living through our own very, very tumultuous historical times. Um, so I think part of that has being has been being more um, centered. Uh, I have my own daily practice of of meditation and yoga. Uh, I mean, I've been practicing for over twenty years. So, um, but really trying to be more present, um, both with my family um, and and uh, my my personal life, in addition to the professional and the political um, responsibilities. Third question, how would you define humility in the context of doing good in your field, maybe particularly as a scholar looking at justice issues in your field? How do you define humility? 
Well, I would say you define humility by remaining um, a curious student and realizing that that's what you are, even if you're a, a scholar. Um, you're you're just you're never going to know everything, and you need to be excited about trying to read <laughs> everything. And so the humility um, really comes in just your your point of view as somebody who's just a student alongside other students, even though you might have a 40-year head start in the reading and the archives. <laughs> and for question number four, what's one thing you think could make the road safer in context of, of your work? Well, I think one of the things we have to think about now is what King talked about with the Poor People's Campaign and the Voting Rights Campaign. I mean, one is... Um, really ending voter suppression in the United States, but two is really the elimination, the eradication of of poverty and structural and physical violence against poor people, right? So I think that par part of what we need to move forward is creating a guaranteed floor, which is what Dr. King called it, uh, for, for every single American. And really, once you come out of that circle for really everyone on, on the planet, uh, and that's going to make things um, much better for all of us, uh, including me, in terms of trying to do this work. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then last question, uh, I was thinking about this question in context of you're saying, you know, in some ways, if we look more carefully and through Dr. King's lens, it might lead us more towards weeping. But uh, how do you personally, how do you sustain hope in the midst of your work? Well, I think I sustain hope in the fact that there's so many people who do want to see um, social justice and racial equity, economic justice for all people, intersectional justice. Uh, Dr. King is part of that, but of course there's the Ella Bakers and the Fannie Lou Hamers. And um, in our own time, we have so many different um, heroic figures, uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, uh, Reverend Barber, uh, the Black Lives Matter activists like uh, Tamika Mallory and Alicia Garza and Opal Tometi and Patrice Cullors and so many others. So I think that um, and right here in Austin, I've I've seen so many different activists. Had a fortunate, uh, been fortunate enough to meet them and speak with them and dialogue with them. Um, so that that gives me really really hope that um, 15 to 26 million people marched uh, for Black Lives Matter um, last year. 81 million people became part of a coalition that was definitely a racial justice coalition, an anti-racist coalition, um, a coalition of of conscience the most in American history for a presidential election. Um, the victory of Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff was hugely optimistic and empowering. Uh, Warnock is presiding over Dr. King's um, Ebenezer Baptist Church. And for him to win in a state where there's still Stone Mountain, which is an abomination uh, to democracy and to the Lord, to Stone Mountain is a, is a, is a, is a tribute to the Klan. Um, the fact that Warnock could win in that state and really be one of the, the legatees of Martin Luther King Jr.'s, Dr. King's legacy, is hugely important and optimistic. And then connecting that with, a, you know, he, he was instrumental in helping uh, the young 33-year-old Jewish-American Senate candidate, now Senator uh, John Ossoff, to win too. So those are all very, very hopeful signs. The work of St Stacey Abrams, the young women of WNBA. So people do want to create and are trying to actively build the beloved community in our own time. Uh, it's just that the forces that are arrayed against all of us are, are quite um, powerful and, and dramatic.
Well, thank you so much, Peniel, for this conversation. We're so grateful for the, your scholarship and the way you can communicate it in a way I think that that, uh, that pricks uh, all of our consciences to be thinking, um, you know, thinking seriously about these issues and to keep on pressing forward into justice. It made me think of the first line from the sermon that we've been talking about today, or King says, um, about the Good Samaritan, he is a man who's exemplarily Life will always stand as a flashing light to plague the dozing conscience of mankind. So thank you for your work that helps to make sure that that, uh, that, that flashing light continues to reach, reach those of us uh, like me, you know, who need to hear this and, and keep on growing in what we're doing, how we're loving our neighbor. Uh, as we close, anything that you would like to alert? We have your new book out. We'll be sure to have a link to that. Anything else you'd like to alert our listeners to uh, that you have going on? Uh, no, you know, you can check out what we have a podcast at the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy called Race and Democracy. And we try to do something similar with different thought leaders um, around issues of race and equity. Uh, but we have some spiritual and religious um, folks who are on as well. So um, I would tell people to check that out if they can. Well, thank you again so much for being with us today. So, and I, I know what you shared was both impactful for both Kent and I, and I know it will be for our listeners as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so grateful for this conversation with Peniel. Um, insightful. I, I have one thing right away that I'm grateful for is what he talked about is taking the edge off of Martin Luther King junior and sometimes i think over time the edges have been taken off but for me for hopefully for you as well having the edges taken off uh is really helpful helpful so that we can hear challenges uh for ourselves and makes me think about our vision jamie and laura and i for this podcast that sometimes we'll have evangelicals on as guests sometimes we won't uh, we're we think that learning how to do good better involves listening to lots of perspectives with different insights and understanding from us Sometimes this will make us uncomfortable. Sometimes we won't agree. Sometimes we will agree. Uh, we think that's good. We want to keep listening for correction. We want to keep listening in our blind spots. We want to keep listening so that we can keep growing in how to love others. Um, Peniel talked about empathy and the importance of empathy in King's life. Uh, and then also love Peniel's, you know, talk about himself and the importance of being curious uh, as part of humility. So grateful for this conversation. I hope it's also a helpful conversation for you as all of us keep seeking to do good better. Thanks for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. You can find links to the things we mentioned during this episode in the show notes. And special thanks to the brilliance for this fantastic music theme. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. You can also follow the Humanitarian Disaster Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you next week as we continue learning to do good better. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.